Welcome to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. My name's Pat Stratton, and I'll be your host. I was inspired to start this podcast by my father, Captain Richard Allen Stratton, U.S. Navy, retired. While on active duty, he served our country with honor for over 30 years. During that time, he served in the Vietnam War and spent six and a half years as a prisoner of war in North Vietnam after being shot down on a combat mission. He endured torture, near starvation, and other significant mistreatment during that time. In the years after his release from Hanoi in March of 1973, I've had the opportunity to listen to his stories and ask questions about what happened. The stories always fascinated me, although often they made me really mad when I learned how badly he had been tortured. In the years after his release, there was a book written about him, and he also spent significant time writing down the stories himself. The assembled writings of my father are titled Tales of Southeast Asia. Recently, I've been rereading these stories and I thought it would be really worthwhile to create this podcast so everyone could hear some of the stories from my father firsthand. The Yankee Air Pirate Podcast is born. During the podcast series, you'll hear these stories from my father directly and perhaps from some of those he served with. Wait until you hear this first story, A Bad Day. He was flying a mission he was not even supposed to be flying that day to begin with. It's the story of January 5th, 1967, the day he was shot down over North Vietnam. It was the first day of the rest of his life. So let's get to it. Great to be here with my favorite Yankee air pirate today. And what I'd really like to do today is talk about a really bad day in January 1967. If you could uh, tell us a little bit about the day and your vivid memories of it. I'll never forget January 5th, 1967. It was my day to sleep in because I had a late afternoon hop. And about 0500, I got a call from Mike Astoshan, who was our ops officer and my best friend, and he asked me to volunteer to take his weather hop, which uh, I was glad to do anything for him because he was a friend. However, uh, it turned out not to be such a good deal. So uh, you weren't scheduled to fly that day, but he called you and asked you to take his hop for him, and and you did it uh, without a problem because he was your buddy. And so what time did the, did the flight uh, schedule leave? Oh, it was about uh, a 0615 or 0630 launched two aircraft. The flight leader was uh, normally my wingman, John the Animal Parks. And we took two aircraft loaded with rockets. And our job was to go out and check the weather, which was kind of a joke. We've been doing that probably for 50 years in the Navy, checking out the weather, and it doesn't make any difference whether the weather's any good or not. We fly that day anyway. And the benefit to you is that coming down the coastline, you can check and see if there are any cargo carrying junks or any of the enemy loitering around from nighttime ops. 
so you can blow them out of the water. So it was basically a, a freebie. Okay, so you, you, you get an early wake up from your buddy, you go in, you do your, your pre-flight, Any, did anything uh, stick out in your mind about that or was that just total routine, nothing of memory? Well, you know, there's nothing really routine about a pre-flight and especially uh, when it's dark out, you're trying to check the airplane with a red flashlight and, and things just aren't quite as visible as you'd like them to be. But what I did notice was that on my Aero 7D rocket packs, they didn't have a nose cone on them, which meant that it was a flat surface. So immediately my fuel consumption was going to be a problem. Uh, that I did note. But otherwise, everything was routine, and off we went. We checked out the weather, and the weather was lousy, as predicted. And uh, we went down the coastline, and apparently the animal, uh, John, he saw something off to the side, and he peeled off without telling me, and I looked around and figured out he must have seen something in the river mouth. So I took a look at that and saw some bridge sections that they had used at night, and they were now pulling them ashore and tying them up along the shoreline so we couldn't blow them out of the water. So I decided to unload my rockets on those bridge sections. And uh, the difficulty was when I unloaded all the rockets, the debris from the rockets exploding in front of my airplane uh, went into the engine, caused me a problem. Those, those rockets were leftovers from the Korean War and World War II. The fins occasionally didn't come out. In this case, at least the warheads worked because they blew up, but unfortunately right in front of the airplane. So I, w I was kind of out of business at that point in time. So you you had, did you have two different kinds of rockets on on that mission? Didn't you have Zuni, Zuni rockets and then the, the Aero A7s, uh, or are those one and the same? No, they're, they're, they're two different rockets. One's a 5-inch rocket, and the other is a 2.75, uh, half the size. So um, we knew that the old rockets were relatively useless, but we had to take them because that's all Mr. McNamara gave us. Normally, if I were leading the flight, I would have dumped them as soon as I got out of sight of the ship because all they are are speed brakes. They really aren't any good anyway. But... Uh, John had the flight lead, and he chose not to drop them, so I went along with them, and uh, that was a built-in problem. But you'd have to take two of the lousy rocket packs to get two of the good ones. It's sort of a two-for arrangement. All right, gotcha. So the the Zuni rockets were the good ones. Oh, yes, straight and, as an arrow. And did, did you ever get to fire off your Zuni rockets before you— uh, uh, launch the the bad ones no no never did never did uh, because i as soon as that debris went into the engine uh i had a, a multitude of problems and had to make some instantaneous decisions okay and so when you fired off those rockets how long did it take until you knew you had a problem instantaneously i knew i had a problem the debris went into the engine and uh, the uh, fire warning light came on, all kinds of caution lights, hydraulic fluid, and all of the other warning lights you had were flashing. The engine was chugging, it was just like it was passing gas from eating Boston baked beans instead of <laughs> scrap metal. And I'm turning towards the ocean, trying to get as close as I can to the water. I'm 220 knots, and 
2,200 feet. It's amazing what sticks in your mind from the the control panel. And uh, I was going to ride the plane down as far as I could. It didn't make any sense to jump out and have them capture me. So uh, I had to make a decision uh, when the fire warning light came on instantaneously whether I would die like a man or get out of the airplane. So uh, when you started having trouble with the aircraft and and flames were coming out of the intake, did you uh, were you able to turn to head out over the water? How close were you to the water when all this took place? Uh, probably five miles from the... Uh, uh, the shoreline from the uh, the Gulf of Tonkin, and uh, yeah, I started to turn, but uh, it was obvious that I wasn't going to make it. And in that aircraft, when the fire warning light came on, you probably had about thirty seconds before the airplane was going to blow up. So you were either committed to dying like a man, or bailing out and spending tw- the next twenty five years in jail. Okay, so you you got out and. Uh, your bad day didn't end there because you you did not have real good luck when you landed with that parachute, as I understand it. Well, you know, that you were talking about that, but uh, even before then, it, it, there's kind of a, a moral dilemma in getting out of the airplane because, uh, one, you're sitting on 1,200 pounds of JP-5 fuel, and uh, the, the rocket... Uh, the ejection seat is powered by a rocket. Right. And I had a bad experience with a rocket out on the wing of the airplane, and this one strapped to my ass. So I, I really had to go through a sort of a, a moral decision-making process. And what uh, maybe continue on to have the bad day was that I hearkened back to some motivating words that were issued to me by my wife in Lemoore, California, when I was leaving uh to join the ship and go to over on this deployment. She took me from Hanford down to Lamoa Naval Air Station and dumped me out on the, the tarmac and uh, had you three kids in the back, Pat, Mike, and Charlie. And, of course, your youngest brother there, Charlie, uh, he had just done a dump in his trousers. And, <laughs> and in the San Joaquin Valley with that temperature, that's kind of a, a, a malodorous. So you're looking forward to getting away for a cruise. Well, you know there's a... Time to leave the peace of peace for the peace of war. And there's a good time to go to sea. And you weren't helping any. You were beating the living hell out of Michael. But Mike deserved it, though. Well, <laughs> I wasn't about to judge that. I just wanted to get out. I gave your mother a peck in the cheek. And I'm running. I'm, I'm glad to get out of there at this point. <laughs> and she yells after me these words that reach me in this turning, burning, churning cough, uh, cockpit some 10,000 miles away. And she says, don't you dare die and leave me with these three little bastards. And, <laughs> I can see that. Well, that's a commitment. And uh, I didn't know if, you know, if I did die, she'd probably come down and haunt me uh, either in hell or limbo, whichever one I, I ended up in. All right. So you decided to punch out. And when you did, uh, your, your luck didn't, your Bad luck didn't end there because he came down in a precarious position. Well, I did it to myself, you know. It's like volunteering for the hop. Uh, in, in my parachute training, I've been told you can steer the parachute. You you pull on the risers, dump the air out of one side, and it, it will slip and 
motivates you in the other side. And so I'm climbing one of the rises. Also, they're shooting at me, so that motivation to climb as far so as you're shooting way. at you yeah, as you're coming. Oh, down. sure, yeah. Wouldn't you? And then, <laughs> <laughs> and and in the process of doing that, I. I steered myself into the only tree behind the only house in five square miles. So before I even had my helmet off, I was captured by some very irate farmers. Wow. The peasants were pissed. And um, what what did the welcoming committee look like? What, what kind of uh, arms did they have? Well, they, they obviously were very poor. They had... <laughs> they had rubber tire go-aheads for shoes and cutoffs for their trousers and uh, wife beater shirts on. And they were carrying things that looked like uh, uh, Revolutionary War muskets and World War One rifles, sticks and pitchforks, and obviously anything they could grab. And uh, they were a little bit angry. Yeah, I could imagine that. Um, I can't blame him for that. I'd do the same thing. And and so back to uh, when when the aircraft uh, had the problems and blew up, did you uh, have a chance to get a radio call out and, and signal your wingman you were going down or anything like that? You know, I, I'm sorry you mentioned that. I purposely ignored that because, uh, yes, I did. I, I got off one radio transmission. And what was that? I said, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, that's and, 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 appropriate. And, you know, it, it, you know, Navy people die saying things like, don't give up the ship and damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. And your father goes down in history uh, with the famous words of, oh, shit. Back to the tree. Let's, let's go back to the tree. So you come down, you're hanging in the only tree, in the only uh, field for five square miles, and you got a bunch of irate um, uh, Vietnamese there with all kinds of, uh, all kinds of weapons. Uh, how did they get you down out of the tree? Did you get out of the tree yourself, or did they cut you down? Well, actually, uh, my toes were touching the ground. Okay. The parachute was in the top of the tree. Basically, I was immobilized. They... Uh, used machetes to cut the harness for the parachute. They hauled me down and used the machetes to disrobe me. And uh, they were pretty good with the machetes. They actually cut the laces to the, the boots that I was wearing without cutting the tongues of the shoes. And, uh, wow. Uh, well, but also they, they cut the fly of my trousers without cutting my most vital parts, which I appreciated very much. <laughs> All so right. I'm, I'm I'm standing there in my my skivvy shorts, and my wingman Parks couldn't figure out whether I had been blown out of the airplane and killed in the explosion or whether I came out alive. So he decided to come down and take a look. He came across a rice paddy that I was standing next to, so low that he left a rooster tail in the water in the rice paddy. The people that had captured me and myself. We're so impressed by this, we all jumped into the Benjo ditch, the drainage ditch next to the rice paddy, because we figured he was going to hit us. Um, so what what do you figure his his purpose of making those low passes was? Was he just trying to get an eyeball on you, or do you think he would have 
tried using some of his weapons to fire at, at the Vietnamese if he had an opportunity, or was that just a no-go to begin with? No, he would have fired if it if it was if there was an opportunity for it. He was trying to identify if I was on the ground and if I was alive because I was close enough to the water for him to call in a rescue mission. But he didn't want to call in a rescue mission if I was dead or if they couldn't identify where I was. And, and what would a rescue mission look like? What Would they have called in a helicopter then to come? We were close for... enough to the water that call in a helicopter from one of the destroyers offshore and a couple of the A-1 Sky Raiders from the Ticonderoga would provide an air cover for the, um, the helicopter. They'd come in, drop a line to me, and haul me up in a harness and drag me out. Okay. Unfortunately, it never, it never got to that. Um, so um, when they took you down out of that tree and your, and your wingman... Uh, ran out of fuel and, and had to take off, uh, what did they do with you then? What, what was the next step for them? Well, putting things together years later, we figured out that they had a um, Ho Chi Minh, the president of the country, had decided that we were worth something as hostages and wanted us alive and in one piece and put out the word to all the peasants to, not to kill us, but to bring a, bring us in and would give them a reward for capturing us. So they hauled me off to a central point where they could turn me over to their militia. So I was stuck for maybe uh, an hour or so in a, in a village in some sort of a, a small hut with all the people in the village running sticks through the thatched sides of the hut trying to skewer me and... All I wanted was a drink of water. Did you ever get any water out of them? Never did get any water at all. The The poor French-speaking Vietnamese teacher could not understand uh, French-Canadian French spoken with a Boston accent. <laughs> so did, did they give you anything? Did they give you something to eat? No, and the next leg after the militia got me, they started marching me off. I'm blindfolded. So I can't tell what's going on except for being blessed with a big nose because I can look underneath the blindfold and kind of watch my feet and raise my head up high and look out and see a little bit. Uh, about halfway through the afternoon, they had stopped at a village to call everybody out and have free wax at me, and I think they lost control of the crowd. This is my, my guess. But they bought me out into a field and dug a quick ditch, and I thought they were going to execute me. And they put me in the ditch, which was about waist deep. And I heard a, a gun go off. And uh, I tell the story to your mother, and she said, yeah, they shot you, and the, the bullet went in one ear and out the other ear. Because <laughs> I, I figured I got shot, and I didn't feel a thing, and that was a wonderful way to die. And they immediately pushed me on my face into the into the ditch, and I even then I figured out that they had staged a mock execution to get rid of the crowd because they were losing control of the crowd, and they were responsible for bringing me back in in one piece. But so it sure they, they were afraid that somebody in the crowd was going to hurt you and 
ruin their opportunity to get a reward. reward Absolutely ruin their reward. So very practical people. So I didn't get, uh, at that point, after the crowd dispersed, they gave me some food. They gave me a bowl of rice and some fish in it or something like that, which uh, was moist enough that I could get it down. I still didn't get any water, but I had learned in survival school a long time ago, you never turn down food no matter where or what it is. So it was a good thing because I wasn't going to eat for about four more days. Yeah, and so um, what was the process then after they turned you over to the militia and did did they get you in a vehicle and start driving you up to Hanoi or did Vietnamese regular army come down and, and get you and bring you up? to Hanoi? How, how did that all work? Well, that was kind of all of the above. They they apparently were marching me uh, still through farmland along the edges of dikes uh, to a rendezvous point where there was a decent road to be turned over. The militia was going to turn me over to the regular army. And about midnight or so, they uh, stopped to... Uh, Civilians showed up in a packet limousine, looked like about a 1939 packet. It was a nifty-looking limousine, and put the high beams on and took a picture of me. They put my uh, Marine Corps flight gear on me again, took my picture, and then stripped me down again. And uh, your mother has a copy of that picture. How our government got a copy of that picture, I don't know. But at that same time, a truck showed up, a two-and-a-half-ton regular truck, and they put me in the back of that truck, and we drove to Hanoi. There were two guards in the back of the truck. They were sitting next to the cab, sheltered from the air, and had a couple of 55-gallon drums that were next to them. They had me back by the tailgate, uh, still blindfolded, and any time we'd go up any slight rise, they'd roll it, the drums down and try to hit me with the, I guess they were gasoline drums. Right. And of course, when we went back up the hill, I'd kick it back and try to get them. So we were, <laughs> we're playing that game all the way into Hanoi. And we ended up, it turns out later, I found out downtown Hanoi at the 100 year old French prison, Maison Centrale that was called by the Vietnamese themselves, Wallo. Uh, we nicknamed it eventually the Hanoi Hilton. I kind of hate that name. Um, we drove into a sally port, uh, like you have at most police stations. The gate rises. You go into a, a tunnel-like area. They drop the gate behind you. Then they open up the gate going into the prison. Took me out of the truck, still blindfolded. I'm looking at... Most of this uh, from the underneath the blindfold down the side of my nose. And they took me into uh, what turned out to be the torture chamber, cell number seven, and threw me on the floor and left me there. And I was probably there for maybe three or four hours until dawn. Somebody finally showed up, and then the fun really started. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a hell of a bad day. So I think that's an appropriate title for this uh, for this episode that we're doing today. That's certainly a bad day by any account. 
Well, it was a full day, and there were some good th- <laughs> there were some good things about it, uh, like the parachute opening. Yeah. Uh, the ejection seat worked as advertised. Good point. That's a, even even from the lowest bidder. That's kind of nice thing to know. And uh, the only injury I had was uh, sort of a banged up ankle from one of the fifty five gallon drums running over it. I wasn't quick enough to get out of the roll myself out of the way. Right. So in, in looking at it in retrospect, it wasn't all that bad, but uh, it sure was a long day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, that kind of covers the shoot down and uh, your journey uh, into Hanoi. And uh, that starts a whole new chapter and uh, the rest of your life from that point. But we'll get to that next time. We'll do it next time, okay? Look forward to doing it, my friend. All right. I appreciate you spending some time today talking about all this. I love you. Love you, pal. All right. God bless you.